What preoccupies you? When your mind doesn't have to go anywhere, where does it go? What do you daydream about? What can't you get off your mind? For an entrepreneur, it's the new startup, right? For a coach, always scribbling plays on a napkin. For a mom, her kids. For grandparents, their grandkids. For an 18-year-old adolescent male with hormones raging, well, we don't have to go there, you know. Uh, what preoccupies God? Do you ever think about it? Now, I know some of you are saying, Charles, God's omniscient. Therefore, he thinks about everything at the same time. I know, I know. But you get the point of the question, right? What do you think preoccupies God? Where does his mind regularly go? In a sense, we know Jesus is God, the Word in flesh, right? Well, as you read through the Gospels, as you read the, the New Testament, you discover Jesus' mind is preoccupied with his followers. Jesus is thinking about and preoccupied with us. The church preoccupies Jesus. The church preoccupies God. Now, I have the sneaking suspicion that you're not preoccupied with church. So when you're like on vacation, you don't have to think about anything. My guess is you don't think about attending church. But the church preoccupies God. Jesus is preoccupied with his followers. We're, this series is all about God's preoccupation. And maybe we need to kind of heighten our thinking about the church since that's God's preoccupation. Well, that raises an interesting question. Well, if the church preoccupies God and it needs to kind of, you know, rise in our own thinking, what would be the marks, what would be the characteristics of a really good church? of a church that's committed to Jesus and following him and seeking to live out the mission and enjoying community, what would be the characteristics? Well, there are a bunch of places that we could go in the New Testament. There are chapters and there are even books and Paul wrote letters. But you know, maybe the one place we could go to wrap our minds around the characteristics or marks of church would be one verse tucked away at the end of Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, or you can just listen, maybe you'll even memorize it before the service is over. Acts 2.42 tells us what a church is to be committed to and what a church actually is. Here's what we read. They, they're the believers, right? They're the followers of Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You see those characteristics, right? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the community, the breaking of bread. and Those are characteristics. And all we're going to do for our remaining time, we're just going to walk through them. And uh, maybe give you some handles to hang ideas on as we look at those characteristics. But before we get to the four, we have to realize that this is a community of devotion. It's all about commitment. Notice how the verse began. They devoted themselves. They were committed to. And you know what? If you're not committed, you can't grow. 
There is no growth without commitment. So let me uh, just give you a little quiz. How many of you have ever tried to diet before? Raise your hand. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I won't ask if you were successful. I just said, have you ever tried to diet? Here's what happens, right? If you're like me. You start out motivated, excited, and committed. So for the first few hours, maybe the first day or two, you are living this diet. But then somebody brings donuts to work. And before you know it, you kind of slip over and you take one, you go back to your office, and soon after you finish that one, you better go back and get another one before those vultures in the office eat the rest of them. See how that works? You're kind of committed, but you realize pretty quickly commitment involves sacrifice. Commitment involves discomfort. Commitment involves saying no and saying yes. The church is a community of commitment. They devoted themselves. They were committed to. You know, it's that way in all of life. Suppose you're, um, maybe you started this year, and you know, it's August, by the way. Suppose you started the year, and you were committed. You were going to read the Bible every day, a few times a week, and I don't know what the goal was. You're going to read through the Bible this year, read through the New Testament this year. You're going to make your way through a book or two. You start out, right? You're motivated. But morning comes early, and your ties say, you know what? I, I can skip today. And the commitment begins to wear thin. And, well, you know what? I'll get up soon. I'll do it. I'll read twice as much tomorrow. And commitment begins to wane. Without commitment, there's no growth. Now, I know we talk a lot here that it's not works that establish our relationship with Jesus. And our relationship with Jesus is not built by works. But the bottom line is there is no growth without commitment. There's got to be sacrifice. There's got to be some discomfort, and there's got to be saying no and saying yes. That's how growth happens in all areas of life. And so that means when you're devoted, committed to community, there's going to be some sacrifice, and there's going to be some discomfort, and there's going to be saying no and saying yes. And I know that our lives have all been radically changed the last few years with COVID. Um, But tell me um, how you commit to spending time being together, right? Well, you can be motivated and you can say no and say yes. But boy, eventually it's easier to not come. It's easier to not participate. It's easier to say yes to this and no to that. There's no community without commitment. That's true in a marriage, and that's true in a bigger community called church. Every once in a while, uh, if I'm doing a wedding, I've got one coming up in a couple weeks, if I'm doing a wedding, um, the couple will say, usually the bride, she will say, we're going to write our own vows. I usually cringe at that point. And say, well, I've got some standard vows here. Before you, you know, put your time in a habit, if you read these, and no, 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 we're going to write around. Now, here's the problem. Writing vows is fine. Here's the problem with writing vows, though. Usually, if the bride and groom are writing their own vows, they state the present. They state what they're feeling at the present. But that's not what vows are. Vows are not a statement of the present. 
Vows are a promise for the future. So, for example, if you write, many couples write their own vows, sounds like this. I love you. I want you really badly. That, that, they're not vows. That's a statement of the present emotion. Here are vows. In sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, until we are parted by death. There are vows. Vows are not statements of an emotional present. Vows are promises for the future when the emotion begins to wane a little bit. Vows are about commitment. Vows are about devotion. And you have to know something about vows. Because marriages are built on vows. Communities are built on vows. Church is built on vows. It's a community of commitment, sacrifice, discomfort, saying no to this so you can say yes to that. Well, what is this church community thing devoted to? Well, the first thing in the list is they're devoted to truth, right? To the apostles' teaching, right? So that's the first thing that gets mentioned in the verse. This community, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, in case you haven't noticed, Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 comes at the end of a sermon that Peter preaches. And I, I kind of like the sermon. I read through it again this morning. It has three points, just like every good sermon, right? The first point is, what? What's going, what the heck is going on? All of a sudden, the wind blows, and all these followers of Jesus, the 120 or so, they're speaking different languages, and these people that have gathered for Pentecost from all over the world, they're hearing this group of people in their own language. What's going on? Peter explains it. The first point in the sermon is, well, what's going on? This is what was promised in the Old Testament by Joel. God's Spirit is now being poured out on this new community. This is the inauguration of the Spirit's change in what's going on. That's the what. The second point of the sermon is why. It's not because um, they did anything different. It's because of Jesus. And in the middle section of the sermon, Peter goes into, Jesus is the one. This is a Jesus community. It's all about Jesus. He's the one that came and paid the debt that we owed. He's the one that rose from the dead to prove that God's satisfied. He's the one that ascended to heaven and now the power has been released so that we can be his witnesses. You got the what and the why. But that's not the end of the sermon. What's the third point in the sermon? Now what? In fact, the listeners of the sermon even asked the question, right? What should we do? Peter doesn't pull any punches. He said, you have to repent. Turn from the life you're living and how you're living. Turn to Jesus and follow him. That is what you have to do. And amazingly, we're told in verse 41, right before our verse, that 3,000 people turn from and turn to. They turn from their former life. They turn to Jesus in faith. 3,000 people. And then it's that new community of 3,120 people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, just in case you begin to think, boy, that was a short sermon. I read. We just have a short little summary of that sermon. That sermon went on for a long period, much longer than this sermon is going to go on. <laughs> Peter preaches a long time. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You ever realize we spend lots of time 
you know, talking about the Bible, teaching the Bible, lots of energy, lots of money. Um, in fact, the main thing we do is communicating not our message, we're communicating the message of the Scripture. We're communicating the truth of the Gospel. That's what brings the difference. What's going on? Why is it going on? Jesus is the reason. And how should people respond? That's what we're about. That's what Peter preached. And that's the apostles' teaching. It's not a self-help message. It's not, you need to go fix yourself. No, no, no. Here's what's going on. It's what God promised. Here's why it's going on. It's all about Jesus. And here's what you must do. Turn from what you're following and follow him. That's the apostles' teaching. That's what we do. In fact, Paul tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. It's their teaching that actually builds and provides the foundation for all that we do. So the church is devoted, committed, not committed to anything, committed to the apostles' teaching. Second, the church is also committed to community. To community. Uh, here's how uh, verse 42 says it. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, I didn't use fellowship as the outline point because, you know, fellowship has been kind of churchized. And what that means is, you know, when we used to be able to eat together, you know, you get together. Fellowship doesn't mean eat. The Greek word koinonia is the idea of sharing. It doesn't necessarily always mean sharing things. It can mean that. It means sharing an experience. It means being together. The church meets together. In fact, when you read through the first couple chapters of Acts, it's interesting. In Acts chapter 1, that group of 120 followers of Jesus were devoted to staying meeting together. In 2.42, they're devoted to fellowship. And at the end of the chapter, it says they continued and they were devoted to meeting together in the temple courts with one another. Devotion is all over. But it's not just devotion to the apostles' teaching. It's not just devotion to learning what God says. It's devotion to each other. Devotion to the apostles' teaching that bleeds over in commitment and devotion promises to each other. You know, in our world, every once in a while, you'll read, and I read some. Well, you know, you don't have to be involved in a church to be a follower of Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says followers of Jesus meet together. Followers of Jesus are not only committed to him, they're committed to one another. And I know there are lots of different ways to do that, but there are no isolated Christians living alone. Now, again, sometimes circumstances and difficulties may, may provide that kind of context, Committed people to Jesus are committed to each other. But that involves devotion, doesn't it? Our family uh, isn't huge, continues to expand, and so we're trying to get together uh, for a little celebration. Now, here, here are the only people involved in this celebration. You're not invited. Here are the people invited. Kim and me, now getting her schedule together, that's a whole feat by itself, right? So it's Kim and me, Ashley, my oldest daughter, and Jeff, and their two grandsons. Well, that exponentially increases the sacrifice, the uh, difficulty, and to say yes and say. They've got schedules. They have to go to bed at a certain time. They eat at a certain time. And they have lots of weird wants and likes and dislikes. And all that has to be taken into account. Ash and Jeff both have jobs. So trying to get together for a celebration, all of a sudden, it's a big ordeal. Oh, you then add Mike and Megan. They have different jobs. They don't like some of the stuff that Ashley and Jeff like, and the boys can't eat at this certain time. Getting together is a major ordeal. It involves sacrifice. It involves discomfort. It involves planning and scheduling and saying no and saying yes. Hopefully tonight we'll pull off this celebration we've been trying for three weeks. If it's that complicated with uh, eight people, 
How complicated is it for a thousand? How complicated is it for a small group? Community involves commitment, sacrifice, discomfort, saying no to this so you can say yes to that. Those first followers of Jesus, the church, they were devoted to fellowship, to being together. Take sacrifice, some discomfort, saying no and saying yes. It also says that they were devoted to, um, to the gospel. Some of you say, ah, Charles, I didn't read gospel. And, ah, let me show you what I mean. They were devoted to, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, do you notice, before breaking of bread there, you see a definite article, the. Now, I know there's some debate about this, but I think the definite article is kind of raising the flag to say, they're not committed to just eating together. They're committed to the breaking of bread that's the celebration of communion. That's coming to the Lord's table. And what is communion all about? Communion is a drama, right? It's a drama of the gospel. And so picture communion kind of like this. The community gathers, we gather, and we come. You may not be physically, but it's a reminder that we're hungry and thirsty people. And we can't provide food and drink that will satisfy our hunger and thirst. What do we need? Remember from maybe a few weeks ago, what is grace? Jesus providing for people what they cannot provide for themselves. That's the definition of grace. And what's communion dramatizing? We gather together hungry and thirsty, and we can't satisfy our hunger. We can't satisfy our thirst. We can't fix the problem we've got. But on that night, before Jesus was crucified, he met with his followers, and he took bread. And in the drama, he said, this is my body, given for you. Now, it really wasn't his body, right? You get that? Like his body was holding the bread, right? So the bread's not his body. He's, his body's holding, but he's saying, this is the drama. This represents, this is my body, and I'm giving it for you. And he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And their hunger is satisfied, not by having a little piece of bread, but by what the bread is symbolizing, Jesus giving himself for them. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, not carved in stone the way the old covenant was. This new covenant is written in my blood. And as often as you do this, remember me. Remember that you're hungry. Remember that you're thirsty. Remember that you can't satisfy your own hunger. You can't satisfy your thirst. But I came to satisfy. And I give my life so you'll never hunger again. And I'm giving my life so your thirst will be satisfied forever. And I rise from the dead to prove that God is satisfied with that. You see, communion is a drama. And when we celebrate communion, it is about the gospel. And so what was this first community of Jesus committed to? To the apostles' teaching, which was all about grace and the gospel. It's not self-help. 
They were committed to community, to being together, not just learning, but they're being together and helping each other, one anothering each other as they grow. And they're committed to remembering the gospel. They're committed to not just remembering, but then living it out. And the last thing it says, uh, they were committed to prayer. They were committed to prayer. Here's what it says. They devoted themselves to prayer. Now, my guess is that you pray. In fact, everybody prays at one time or another. Even people that don't believe in God, they pray. They kind of reach a, you know, they hit a dead end and they pray. They're not quite sure who they're praying to or about, but, but what's the difference in the prayer of Christ's followers? Well, it kind of has two parts to it, right? The first part is weakness, inadequacy, failure, faults, flaws. That's the first part. Without humility, there is no Christian prayer. Now, we talked about grace in the communion piece, but do you realize that grace is the foundation of Christian prayer, right? You, you come recognizing you don't have what's required for life. How weak do you know yourself to be? I don't know about you, but periodically God sends reminders to show us that whatever we think we're in control of, we're actually in control of nothing. You think you got your life together, you're staying in shape, you're anyway, you go to the doctor and get a bad report and you realize you're in control of nothing. Have something happen in a relationship and you're, you're in control of nothing. But that's not a bad place to be. That's actually a biblical place to be. You know, one of the messages, it seems to me, that Jesus continually taught his disciples, as he kind of meets them and grows, they're full of themselves, right? And if you read through the Gospels, it's almost like he's helping the disciples grow up to become children. Parents, remember when your kids were little? How did you feel when they came to you and said, Mommy, Daddy, help. They get older. Mommy, Daddy, money. <laughs> Mommy, Daddy, can I use the car? Right? Now, you kind of smile, right? You don't smile because your kid doesn't know. You're smiling because your kid actually gets it. It's my car. It's my money. You can't do it yourself. But I can give you what you need to help you. Parents don't laugh. They don't shame their kids when they come requesting things kids ask for. Well, extrapolate that into your relationship with God. You know, how many times are our prayers filled with, you know, I can do this, give me that. Well, maybe our prayers need to be, I don't know what to do. For uh, probably about a little over a year now, Kim and I uh, pray each morning. And uh, we've been trying Rather than praying prayers that are full of strength and adequacy and praying prayers like, I don't have what it takes today. I don't know the answers to the questions. I don't have the strength to sit and handle that conversation. I don't have the ability to do that. I, you know, it's kind of interesting. If, if you start with your 
weakness and an acknowledgement of it, Jesus like can't wait to come and say, I hear you, right? You're my child, you get it. If you don't pray like that, you pray like yeah, you got your act together. You know, I, I got this handled guy. Yeah, maybe I need a little. It's almost as if it, this isn't right. But in my mind, I look, see Jesus saying, okay, well, let me know how that goes. Okay, get back to me on that. It's not going to go well. But humility is only the first part. The second part of biblical prayer is confidence. But not confidence in our ability, not confidence in what we do. Confidence in Jesus, the one we're praying to, right? Confidence that God will supply our need. Confidence that he already has taken care of our biggest problem. And as we follow him, yeah, life may not turn out exactly the way we want, but it's going to turn out exactly the way that he knows it should. And he's working these things in our lives to make us strong and mature and healthy. And that may not be the kind of drill you want to go through, but that is the drill that Jesus wants us to go through. Humility. I don't have it. I'm weak. Confidence. And where does the confidence come from? The confidence of Christian prayer, of the church's prayer, comes because our relationship has now been changed. We don't have a business relationship with God where we do this and God gives us that, right? I pay the rent and God lets me live here. I do this and I live out. No, no, no. This is a family relationship. Kids don't pay the bills. They don't keep the house clean. They, but they're still in the family, right? This is a family relationship. Humility and confidence. Marks of a church. You were probably thinking we're going to have a list of, yes, we need to go do this aggressive, you know, full of ourselves. No. They're committed to the apostles' teaching. The message of grace and forgiveness that comes from a Savior because we can't save ourselves. Committed to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. We're not just committed to Jesus, we're committed to each other. And that's going to involve sacrifice and discomfort and saying no and saying yes. And I don't know what you need to start saying no and yes to, whether it's in your relationship with God or whether it's in fellowship or whether it's tea. You need to say yes and no. Because there's no growth without commitment to remembering the gospel, to the breaking of bread. We don't need the drama every day, every hour of celebrating communion, but we do need to be rehearsing the gospel regularly. And as we do that, we realize how weak we are and how he supplies us with all that we need. Wouldn't it be great if Calvary was a church that people looked at and said, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, community, to the breaking of bread, the gospel, and to prayer. I don't know about you. That would be about all we need. Let's stand and pray. Father, it's easy when we come to uh, markers of maturity either pat ourselves on the back and think, boy, I'm doing pretty well, or to be crushed and say, oh, I'm failing all over the place. But Lord, help us to remember what we just talked about prayer. Yeah, in and of ourselves, we can't do this, but our confidence comes in Jesus. It comes in the gospel. Lord, help us not to get on the self-help treadmill, but help us to learn about commitment. Growth takes sacrifice. 
discomfort will be involved. Saying no and saying yes, that's how we grow. And maybe in your life, my life, we need to be a little more committed to the apostles' teaching, to Bible reading and reflection and living it out. Maybe it's to community. Maybe it's to living out of the gospel rather than a to-do list that you created. Maybe it's prayer, living the balance in the tension of humility and confidence. Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed or crushed by those things, but motivated, realizing that Jesus accomplishes it all for us and now says, follow me in love and gratitude for all that I've done for you. We pray in his name. Amen. 